0: Come to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. If you looked, could you find a UFO case for every day of the year? What can we learn from a poem written by an Air Force sergeant about UFOs? Did a man in England receive a prediction of World War III from an alien exactly 55 years ago today?
1: Hello and welcome to the 690th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. We're creeping closer towards that 700th show. I'm Ben, and those way out questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, and dad, Paul. Well,
0: today we welcome back an old friend who is usually on the show talking about real-life monsters, But we'll discuss a very different subject today. We welcome your calls and emails. It's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. The author of more than 40 books, Nick Redfern, is one of the world's foremost authorities on UFOs, anomalous animals, and the paranormal in general. His books include A Covert Agenda, The FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, Three Men Seeking Monsters, That's you, me, and Nick, right, Ben?
1: Yeah, basically.
0: Yeah, and Body Snatchers in the Desert. He has written for Military Illustrated, I Spy, Fate, 14 Times, Uh, Phenomena Magazine, and the London Daily Express. He has uh, kept he has spent hundreds of hours at the public record office in London and has uncovered thousands of pages of previously classified Royal Air Force, Air Ministry and Ministry of Defense files on UFOs dating from the Second World War. His latest book, Three Hundred Sixty Five Days of UFOs, A Year of Alien Encounters, is our subject this afternoon.
1: So Nick Redfern, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal.
2: Hey guys. Well, thanks for having me on again.
1: Oh, well, it's great to have you back on. So I guess let's uh let's start from well the beginning, so to speak. So, your book covers significant alien and UFO cases from around the world and around the calendar, really. Uh, is there any particular time of the year when UFO sightings are more common?
2: Um, that, that's difficult to say, really, because we certainly get more reports um, in sort of a summer month. But that may not be because there are more sightings. It's just that there's more people outside, you know, in the summer versus yeah. in the winter. So it it really is difficult to say, uh, to try and pinpoint things. But John Keel, um, back in the 60s, actually did a study um, of UFO sightings and the specific dates they occurred on. And he felt that there was sort of enough evidence to say that, um, you know, there there was sort of a correlation between sightings and particular times of the year. But it it is kind of tenuous, really. You know, as I said, it's dependent on people being outside and looking at the sky, you
1: know. I guess that kind of makes sense. So is there any particular region of the world that are, that well, regions, I should say, of the world that are more prone to UFO sightings?
2: Parts of the world, did you say? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting, because most countries, to some degree, have you know significant UFO encounters, whether it's uh, the United States, South America... Um, europe russia china you can find australia you can find reports all over the place Um, i think one of the things that has happened is that certainly from the early 50s onwards you know there was a great deal of interest in ufos in the u.s in the uk in australia and groups were established to investigate these things so you know a lot of reports came to the groups back then and, and that's continued now If you look at, for example, uh, a place like Puerto Rico, where I've been many times looking for the Chupacabra, um, up until, you know, sort of the last 20 years or thereabouts, you know, when the internet started to kick in, um, one of the things I found was that prior to that, that, you know, there were tremendous amounts of UFO reports on Puerto Rico, but the people on the island really didn't have hardly anybody to report these accounts to. And so... They only surfaced, you know, when researchers such as myself actually went out there and and spoke to the people. So again, it's kind of like with the the date issue that, um, you know, if you've got a tremendous amount of really good report, but the country in question may actually not have um, much by the in the way of a UFO research uh, organisation or organisation. Um, the stories don't get told, and if they don't get told, you know they just remain in the families of the people who saw them. So, uh, so again, it's sort of um, it's a situation where the number of reports from each country is dependent on sort of their ability to to get the information out there.
1: Do you find that there are cultural differences as well? I, I, I've I've noticed that there's sort of a, a UFO culture in mm. some in some, or well, you know, sort of extraterrestrial like. Culture among among certain societies, especially in more uh, first world countries, but have you noticed that in, in any in any sense that there's like a cultural difference? Like people will not really report stuff because they feel, eh, well, I don't really believe in that stuff.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, there's um, I mean, there's a cultural difference in sort of the the physical descriptions of some of the sort of creatures that people report seeing in alien encounters. For example. You know, if you look at the United States, there's a lot of reports of alien abductions and um, the abductees very often, almost always, report these beings as sort of looking small with these oversized large heads, uh, big black eyes, and they become known as the graves. Um But if you look back at um, British UFO reports from the sort of 50s, pretty much to the mid-80s, um, up until then, the, most of the reports were of very human-looking aliens not unlike the ones reported by the so-called contactees in the U.S. back in the 50s. In other words, they looked extremely human. And it was really only from the mid to late 80s onwards that the whole issue of the greys really kind of took hold in the U.K. And then they became sort of, you know, the the foremost type of creature that people describe. describe. In South America, one of the sort of differences there is that they get a lot of, particularly in Brazil, they get a lot of really violent um, UFO encounters where, you know, it just seems outright hostility is sort of directed at the people who see the UFOs with reports of people being killed or vanishing or being injured. Um, so, in other words, you know, that that's the situation in, in Brazil is very different to the US, which is very different, or was at least, to the UK. Um If you look at Russia, um, there have been a lot of reports um, from Russia of UFOs landing. Now, and that's right up to the present day. Now, back in the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of UFO landing cases in the U.S., but you don't really see too many for those classic examples where, you know, somebody is driving down the road and they see this typical flying saucer land and then it takes off and there's sort of like tripod landing marks. We just don't really get those reports here Anymore, but the Russians still do. So you can find a lot of um, similarities, but also a lot of differences, major differences, um, dependent on the relevant country.
1: Hmm, that's actually fascinating. I n- I never knew that. Now, is it? Hmm. I'm trying to I'm trying to think how to, how to phrase this. Well. I guess we'll just move on. So things like UFO reports can be hoaxed, embellished, or even exaggerated yeah, no, yeah. Very, very easily. So what standards of evidence do you apply to cases when you research them? For example, like you mentioned in Brazil, people getting killed, perhaps, by extraterrestrials.
2: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, that's a good question, because with a subject so controversial as UFOs, I mean, it's always vital and important to look at every case on its own merit. Or it's lack of marriage, you know. And so that means, um, interviewing the witness. Now, sometimes, you know, witnesses won't speak on the record. And I understand that because it's very often they don't want to be laughed at or, you know, talked about as the, the guy who saw little green men, that kind of thing. And I, and I get that. So, but it's always preferable if people will speak on the record because that does add credibility. Um, and if, You know, there's a a second or a third witness or multiple witnesses. That's always a good thing, um, rather than just having a one witness case. There's nothing wrong with one witness cases. There are a lot of them. But when you've got multiple people, um, again, that does add weight to the story. Um, And one of these sort of red flags to look out for is if the person who's telling the story sort of uh, elaborates on it or embroiders on it later on you know, to keep the story going, they add new parts to it that they claim they didn't reveal before. To me, that's always sort of a bit suspicious, you know, that they, they kind of like the publicity, but the story has sort of run out of fuel, and so they add a new layer to it. So I think that that's uh, an important thing to look out from the suspicious angle. But, you know, that doesn't take away the fact that, I'm, you know, I'm sure that the vast majority of all the people I've ever interviewed are just regular normal people who are, are, have honestly had a, a weird experience and they're just looking for answers. Um, so, you know, I would apply the same sort of techniques to interviewing a UFO researcher As if I was just writing a regular uh, article for a newspaper. You know, you just use investigative techniques and, um, and do your best to try and figure out whose side of the story is the correct one.
1: So, well, with with that being said, um, recently, uh, I I think as recently as I think it was last week that mass sighting in Paris, of of that. Well,
0: yeah, Paris. uh, No, I actually was was it Paris? I can't remember. uh, Friday. Yeah, it was last week, but it was yeah. last week, so only a few days ago.
1: Yeah, so only, only a few days ago. Have, have you even chan- have you had a chance to look into the, the craft that was seen uh, in France? Supposedly, uh, from some sources I looked at, that it was the same craft that was seen over China a few years ago and before that in Australia.
2: Well, actually, I haven't dug into the story, but yet yeah, it is interesting that with this new one, that, um, that it does actually closely resemble some of these earlier reports. And, and that's an important thing. Because when we're looking into the UFO subject, a lot of reports of of how the craft look, they do sort of typically look either circular, like a flying saucer, or there's this other category known as flying triangles, which are like these large black triangular craft that people report. But I think it's always a good thing when somebody on one side of the world reports something that was seen on the other side of the world, maybe 10 or 20 years earlier, because that suggests that people aren't mistaken that they're actually seeing a particular type of UFO and that you know the, whatever it is it's it's hanging around you know it's, it's in our airspace for a long time so <coughs> excuse me I think these cases where we have examples of the same craft same time and time again that's actually an important part not just because it's a credible report but because it adds weight to the idea that as I said that um Multiple people have seen the same craft all around the world.
0: Well, one thing uh, that comes to mind, Nick, is that that particular and that was shown on the news on Saturday morning, I believe, uh, and it was a rather striking craft, and, and and or if it was a craft, and then orbs, you know, circling around one another, that sort of thing. But I noticed, I, I the first thing that I asked was, "What is the source of this video?" And apparently, from what I heard, it came from a uh, <coughs> a, a UFO organization not a news service and if it was if it came from a news service which is supposedly is objective at least you know you would have uh, you know with, with no hand in the uh, in the cookie jar of ufo uh, research then maybe it might be more credible i don't know but
2: um no i see i no, you I, I get your point i mean you know people who are skeptical are always going to say well if it comes from a ufo person then they faked it you know um but on the other hand, it comes back to what I said at the beginning, that if you've got people looking outside and UFO researchers spend a, a lot of time, you know, in the field investigating things and filming things. So, you know, that's not necessarily an issue. But I, as I said, I think the important thing is that we investigate each case on its own merit. And yes. We have an open mind and an unbiased mind. And I tell, always tell people, don't try and get... Or unconsciously or consciously, don't get caught up in belief systems and the whole "I want to believe" factor. Yes. You know, just look at each case on its own merits, and if it if it still stands up, that's great. If it collapses, well, you've learned a lesson in how to, you know, um, dig out hoaxes. So, Indeed.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, well, you mentioned one thing that that we find pretty interesting, and we've had Ted Phillips uh, on the show oh, yeah. several times. Ted from Missouri, and and Ted is. A, uh, probably has the greatest database of landing evidence mm-hmm. UFO landing evidence, physical evidence uh, that yeah. we've ever heard of and <clears throat> very knowledgeable on that however he's noticed that the nature of UFOs has in his opinion been changing over the past uh, particularly 50 years uh, from the nuts and bolts craft with the uh, legs and landing pads and all that uh, to a more uh, ethereal sorts of things like balls of light but you just mentioned mm-hmm. that in Russia that is not the case could you say more about that that's very interesting
2: well yeah i mean i've got a lot of um friends who have sort of studied you know the whole issue of ufo encounters in russia and you know there are a lot of ufo research groups in russia as well and um i've got from from, certainly from the last 10 years i've got somewhere in the region of four or five sort of really good cases of landings where people saw what they described as like a solid metallic machine with these tripod legs below. Uh, one was in a just on the fringes of an area of forest. One was in a field, and I, f- I forget where the other one was now. But it was, um, you know, the they're, they're sort of like classic examples that you would see in the like in the fifties and the sixties. Here, cases like the Lonnie Mora in Socorro in um, nineteen sixty-four, things like that. And um, so, in other words you know, we, we are still getting classic cases like the old ones, but they're not with the same frequency, and maybe they're not being sort of picked up and talked about as much, and that makes some people assume that this aspect of the phenomenon has gone away. But there's, there's no uh, doubt that, you know, when Ted says that the um, phenomenon has changed, that there's no doubt about that. I mean, if you go back to, for example the latter part of the 19th century uh, we had what were known as the phantom airships these weird airship mm. type craft that were seen flying over the US then in the second world war there were these strange balls of light that would pursue both um, Nazi and, and allied aircraft and there were sort of like these balls of light anywhere from the size of a tennis ball to like a beach ball and they seemed to be under intelligent control and they became known as the Foo Fighters that's where the, the band you know, got its name from um, then in '46 we had these ghost rocket sightings, as they became known, over uh, Scandinavia. Then '47 the flying saucer era kicked in. Now today, people, a lot of people report these so-called large black flying triangles, which sort of look like next-generation stealth aircraft. Which some people think they actually are, uh, but other people point out correctly that reports of these flying triangles have been around for decades. But certainly they're more proliferating and also the 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 entities the creatures reported have changed as i mentioned earlier you know back in the um, early 50s everybody was talking about very human looking aliens very often with long blonde hair and wearing these sort of um, one-piece spacesuits then in the early 60s we had the betty and barney hill alien abduction case which contrary to what some people have said didn't involve the sort of so-called gray alien they were semi-human looking, about five feet tall. And then, of course, in the late 70s through the 80s onward, you have the whole eruption of the alien abduction uh, issue with these, you know, the imagery that everybody has of aliens, whether they're interested or, in or not. You know, sort of the large head, the small body, the big black eyes. So everything about the subject is changing. And I sometimes wonder if the phenomenon itself can alter its form or present itself in a different way depending on the people on the people of the era and the sort of pop culture of the era you know yeah. maybe they change to mm-hmm. suit our belief system.
0: It's a very interesting point. Uh, let's look at your book now uh, if our producer can uh, hold it up uh, there to the uh, audience that may be uh, listening on a device where they can see the video feed here too. And uh, one of the more um, it, it's you. Ha- you literally have cases for from various years for every day of the year. Mm. It's, it's really quite interesting. I'm uh, uh, really enjoying uh, the book. I Haven't finished it yet, but I'm, we're going to, uh, oh, cool. Nick. But um, in in your uh, entry for uh, March fourth, uh, it's the inc- the incident or whatever is taken from the year 1950, and it's a really strange poem by a U.S. Air Force technical sergeant named Barnes. Um, do you think, and I, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a little bit of it here. Yes, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, and it's on page 74 of the book, and, uh, the history here is, uh, in March, in March, the March 1950 history of the 27th Fighter Group, based out of Bergstrom Air Force Base, Texas, contains an odd poem titled The Flying Saucer, which was written by technical Sergeant Barnes. Uh, why? No one really knows, but here's how it reads. Hearing tales of little men and speeding ships on high, around me all most Almost every day I cast a weary eye. Today I saw men gathered around a hangar door. They said they saw a saucer, a tiny ship they swore. They pointed to the cloudless sky, past vapor trails they sigh. I saw a far-off something shining in the sky. We watched it hard. It seemed to move as vapors drifted by. I felt the strangest feelings. Of course I know not why." A weather balloon set up to give the weather for the day. Some set a star that shines so bright. And it goes on uh, for a bit more. Do you think this might have been Sergeant Barnes's way of um, probably uh, of conveying some information about this phenomenon? Maybe maybe an experience that he had without uh, doing so in an overt way? And who's going to notice oh, yeah, a poem?
2: Yeah. yeah, I think that is actually exactly what happened. Um, because the... The, the document that it's contained in, you know, there's no sort of explanation as to, as to why it's there. Um, and I guess he submitted it, and, you know, whoever was the editor um, thought it was interesting enough to put in there. But um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he didn't have his own encounter, and was perhaps a little bit concerned because of being in the military about being, you know, tagged for the UFO phenomenon. Sure. Yeah. Um, and decided to present his own encounter in the form of a, you know, an interesting little <laughs> poem. And, um, you know, it, it's sort of an intriguing little type of thing you don't really get, ever get to see in, you know, in government files, a, a poem about UFOs. <laughs> no. Your and, it's uh, original. And, uh, so, in that sense, you know, it's sort of historical, it's intriguing, and a little bit eye-opening, and, um, you know, the fact that it's so long ago now, chances are, you know, it's probably no longer around we're talking sort of 67 years ago and you know if he was 25 then you know so um but but it it is fascinating you know and it does kind of it's sort of thought provoking in terms of you know what it was that actually prompted him and um if we could dig further into it as i said i would not be at all surprised to find that he'd had his own encounter
0: yeah well it's not wordsworth but it's well worth reading Uh, (laughs) um Certainly, uh, what, are you, what are your favorite cases that you mention in the book, Nick? Uh, to things that you think are particularly striking?
2: Well, I would say some of the weirder Men in Black stories. Um, now, when people think of the Men in Black, particularly people outside ufology, they think of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, you know, from the movies. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't realize that the movies were actually based on real reports of people Encountering the men in black going back to the 40s and you know that's in the journals and the magazines and the fanzines and things like that back in the late 40s and 50s they were referred to as the men in black way back then uh, because they dressed in black suits, black fedoras, black tie turn up in black cars and threaten people who'd had UFO encounters but why I find this subject interesting particularly interesting is because most of the witnesses who I talk about in the book And most of the witnesses in general don't describe the men in black as looking like secret agents of the government. They actually don't look fully human. They're sort of very pale, skinny, gaunt, and they have these large eyes that they hide behind these wraparound sunglasses so you don't get to see the face properly and they have the fedora pulled down. And this has given rise to the idea that the men in black are themselves some sort of alien creature but one which Superficially, at least, looks like us and can pass for us enough. At least, you know, if they come out late at night in the shadows and they don't get seen too closely, then you know they can sort of maneuver amongst us. Um, but the you know the the idea that they're from the government just doesn't hold water. That that is really just more a testament to the success worldwide success of the movie. So that's the assumption. But uh, mm. you know they. Most witnesses have said they describe them. That they kind of look almost like, um, you know, like a modern day vampire is the best way to describe them. Hmm. You know, dressed total- and I don't just mean like, you know, like a goth. I mean they're sort of dressed in black and pale, but their faces are really weird. Apart from the eyes, people describe the skin as looking almost plastic-like. You know, there's not a single line or crease on their face. One witness described it as if it looked like the man in black had sort of overdone it with the Botox, you know. Hmm. Um, but that's, that's and one of the witnesses described um, the man in black estima- estimated that he was probably sort of forty to fifty, but his skin looked like a baby's skin, and which would look really weird, you know. And but everything about the men in black cases is weird, so that's why I've uh, included sort of seven or eight different ones in the book, demonstrating sort of the really weird. Aspects that go along with those cases.
0: Sure. Well, we're coming up on our break, Nick. But uh, when we come back, I'd like to talk about the uh, frog-like alien of Asheville, North Carolina, which you have listed for October sixth, uh, nineteen fifty-three. When I was what six six months old. <laughs> Maybe it was me. Anyway, we're going to take our break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno with our guest, Nick Redfern on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, broadcasting for its 70th year. Congrats to O.N. We'll be right back.
2: Hi, this is Joe Callahan. Join me weekday mornings five to eight for the ON Morning Fun Show. We'll have local news, state news, national news, Lou Mandeville on sports, great music, fun features, and trivia. Weekday mornings five to eight on ON twelve forty W O O N One Socket Radio. O-N Radio O-N Worldwide.
0: Well, welcome back. It's behind the Paranormal. <coughs> Excuse me, with Paul and Ben Eno and our guest today, Nick Redfern. Uh, paranormal Renaissance Men Extraordinaire. And uh, we always promote a certain number of charities on the show, which we check out very carefully before we recommend them to you, and we'll talk about those during during our announcement section. But for now, let's get back to Nick's terrific book, 365 Days of UFOs. And Nick, uh, can you tell us about the frog-like alien? Uh, this is the entry for October 6, 1953, the frog-like alien of Asheville, North Carolina.
2: Well, oh, yeah, this is sort of a really... Weird one, and again, it sort of demonstrates sort of the high strangeness, um, are, you know, these events that occur. Now, Asheville, North Carolina, has actually been the the site of a couple of weird cases um, along these lines. But on this particular night, October the sixth, nineteen fifty-three, um, a driver, he's actually a, a truck driver, um, and he reported his encounter to the military, uh, the military base. Uh, near Asheville, called Port, uh, Fort Bragg. And he describes seeing a creature that was about roughly round about four feet tall and humanoid-looking, but its face and its head was sort of somewhat frog-like in the sense it was sort of bulbous and it had this wide, <clears throat> sort of expansive mouth and these large, stary eyes, uh, sort of glassy eyes. And um, because it was sort of late at night or uh, early hours of the morning... He got his headlights on, and um, it basically sort of lit up uh, whatever this thing was, you know. And um, he could see it for exactly what it was. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but there's actually sort of a, a tenuous UFO tie into it, which is why I mentioned it in the book. Now, you know, one of the other subjects I write quite extensively about um, is cryptozoology, the study of unknown animals. We were just uh, going
0: to ask you about that. Yeah.
2: Well, where, where yeah, do you draw you the could, line? Well, that's right. I mean, you could make a case that this was just some sort of weird, unknown animal that science hasn't found yet. But what's interesting is that according to the truck driver who saw this creature, that just, just you know, literally in no time after he saw it, there was this sort of um, like it was like an electric blue streak going across the sky, and um, he actually sort of suggested that the two were somehow interconnected that whatever this creature was when it was seen it sort of bounded off into a ufo which then shot off into the sky but i mean you know when you when you sort of bring that thing up about you know bringing uh cryptozoology into ufology i mean there are a lot of weird cases where people have seen bigfoot in connection to sort of strange orbs of light flitting around and sightings of ufos and um so you know there's, there's no doubt that the There is a crossover in some cases. I mean, a perfect example uh, would be the Mothman story from 1966-67, which was um, told in John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecies, Mm -hmm. made into a movie in 2002 with Richard Gere. Um, In The Mothman Prophecies, John Keel talks about how people in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, were seeing this sort of fiery, red-eyed, humanoid-type creature, but with wings around Point Pleasant and it became known as the Mothman. Um, But what's interesting is that people who had seen the Mothman were very often visited by the men in black. So there's like a UFO crossover and some other witnesses who'd seen Mothman also had UFO encounters. So it very often makes me wonder if they're actually all part of the same phenomenon. But you know, us being the human race, we kind of sometimes don't look at it like that. We think one phenomenon is, you know, a standalone phenomenon, another one is a standalone phenomenon. Yeah. But when you get these blurry kind of crossovers, it makes you think that we're actually just dealing with one phenomenon but different categories of that phenomenon.
0: Yeah. Right along our the lines of our own thinking, as you know. Uh, a very interesting case here for for the date September fifteenth, the year nineteen sixty two, Avebury, England, the site of the uh, very famous uh, st- lo- ring, the stones, the Avebury stones, uh, prehistoric uh, constructions. Uh, a UFO and a monster, yeah. perhaps uh, right, something along the lines that what you've just suggested.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, Avebury's a little village in the English county of Wiltshire, and, and it's, interestingly enough. Um, it's sort of right on the doorstep of where most of the crop circles um, appear in in the UK every year. Most of them appear in Wiltshire and um, and the vast majority within just a mile or two or three of uh, Avery. And most people, when you, talk, when you talk about stone circles, will think of Stonehenge, which is actually not far away from Avery either. Um, but the UK has numerous, uh, literally hundreds of standing stone circles, um None of them are the size of um, Stonehenge. Some of them are only sort of a 15 feet diameter or 10 feet diameter. They're very small. Um, but the Avery stones, they're not so much um, noted for the fact that they're, you know, they stand 20 or 30 feet tall. They don't. They sort of stand about six to about eight feet tall. But they're sort of spread all around the village in circular design. So, in other words, it's not a high design, but it's like a widespread design. And in 1962, and we know this because it actually became the subject of a British military file, a woman who lived uh, at the time in Avery was taking a walk around the stones late at night, which she liked to do, and um, she saw this ball of light, which, with hindsight, would be kind of like the orbs that people talk about today, these small balls of light that seem either to be some sort of intelligent energy themselves or under some sort of intelligent control. And she sort of watched it amazed, and then suddenly it kind of exploded, not like a bomb exploding, but more like um, you know, like a camera flash going off, that kind of thing, which sort of temporarily you know dazzled her eyes. And she said that suddenly, in its place, the light was gone, and there was this sort of six- to seven-foot-tall, strange creature on the ground which was described as like a large writhing worm um and she just freaked out <laughs> as mm. most people would you know and fled back home and uh, but she described it as like a milky kind of white color um clearly sort of worm-like but you know there shouldn't be anything like that certainly running around or crawling around you know that the uk or anywhere really and certainly not kind of mutating out of a a ball of light. Now, um, this particular case reached um, actually quite a...